Well, good morning, everyone. This morning, we're not going to be in the workbook, so hopefully you can jot down some notes. We also have some handouts over there that might be helpful. It really won't go along with the lesson, but it will help you as you witness to Roman Catholics. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, is how to witness to Roman Catholics biblically. Last week, we had an opportunity to be in Lubbock, Texas, at Fellowship Church of Lubbock. And after teaching a couple of messages Friday night, and we went out with the pastor and several of the members of the church to Texas Tech, and we had a chance to witness to the students. Many of them were on their way to final exams, and we had a chance to talk to them about the ultimate final exam when they stand before their creator. And we told them that he would either be their merciful savior or a sin-avenging judge, but one day every creature will stand before their creator. So this morning we want to look at how to witness to Catholics biblically, so let's go to the throne of grace, shall we? Our Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to represent our Lord Jesus Christ with his gospel and taking it throughout the world. What a privilege it is to be ambassadors to the King of Kings. And we um, pray, Father, that we would not only have a growing compassion for those who are perishing, but also a desire to present the gospel clearly and completely and call people to repentance and faith. So we pray you'd bless our time this morning and that we would leave here not only with a greater compassion for the lost, but with an exhortation and encouragement to be faithful to the Great Commission. So we ask this for the glory of Christ and in the power of his name. Amen. So the Roman Catholic Church represents the largest and most neglected mission field in the world. Some would say, well, Muslims are a larger mission field. They're a little bit larger than the Roman Catholic Church. But the Catholic Church is the most neglected mission field in that Many evangelical leaders today are suggesting and even teaching that Roman Catholics do not need to be evangelized. And they're doing this by way of ecumenical unity accords. It started in 1994. You may be familiar with evangelicals and Catholics together. That was uh, initiated by Chuck Colson and Richard John Newhouse, a Roman Catholic priest and they dare to say that we share a common faith in the gospel with Roman Catholics. And then more recently, we had the Manhattan Declaration in 2009. Many more evangelical leaders have signed on, and now there are 640,000 evangelicals that have signed this unity accord that states we share a common faith in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's become a neglected mission field. Many evangelicals do not know if the Catholic Church represents a Christian denomination made up of brothers and sisters in Christ or if it's a huge mission field that needs to be evangelized. So this morning we're going to look at some of the differences between Roman Catholicism and biblical Christianity. But just a reminder, success in evangelism is when we present the gospel clearly and completely, and then we leave the results to God. Our responsibility is to take the gospel from the pages of Scripture to the person's ear, and it's God's responsibility to take it from their ear to their heart. 
So please keep that in mind because I know it's somewhat discouraging when you present the gospel and you don't see immediate fruit. But remember, we may be sowing the seed that someone else later may see the increase. But let's be faithful to sow the seed of God's word. I think we would all agree that the most cruel and wicked thing anyone could ever do is to deceive people about life's most critical issue. And that is, what must I do to be saved? How can I become right with God? How can I be reconciled with my creator? That's the most important issue everybody faces in this life. And so for a religion that declares itself to be a Christian religion to deceive people about this, it is a very wicked thing. But that's why we're here. We are ministers of the truth, and the very nature of deception is that people do not know they're deceived until they're confronted with the truth, and that's what you and I need to do, lovingly approach people with the truth of God's Word. So we ask the question, why is the Roman Catholic Church a mission field? And according to its official teachings, and I will be using the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is the official authoritative teaching of Rome, According to the Catechism, Catholics worship and trust another Jesus and believe a false and fatal gospel which has them on the wide road to destruction. And this shouldn't surprise us because in 2 Corinthians 11:4, Paul said some would come and preach another Jesus and another spirit, which always leads to another gospel. If we're not presenting Christ in all of his sufficiency, then the Catholic Church needs another gospel to instruct its people what they must do that their Jesus did not accomplish. So as we witness to Roman Catholics, we need to expect a stubborn resistance. Indoctrination is a captivating power that causes a strong resistance to God's word. How many of you grew up Roman Catholic? Quite a few. So you know from the time you could think you were indoctrinated that you were born into the one true church and that this church would eventually get to, you, to heaven through the sacraments and the priesthood. And so that indoctrination is a powerful obstacle to overcome, but there's nothing more powerful than the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and it can penetrate the most stubborn heart. We also need to recognize that religious pride may be Satan's most powerful tool to blind people. And we see in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ. And religious pride is one of his most powerful tools to blind people. As you witness to Roman Catholics, they're going to boastfully say, we belong to the one true church started by Jesus Christ. You guys are the Johnny-come-latelys. Your church didn't start until 500 years ago. Well, the answer to that is Christ only started one church, and we trace our roots back to Matthew 16, 18 as well. But what Catholics don't realize is that there's a term called apostasy. The Catholic Church departed from the faith of the apostles, and it was a gradual departure beginning really in about the second, third, and fourth century, where they no longer submitted to the truth of God's word, and they started following pagan traditions and the teachings of men. 
So there are some obstacles to overcome as we witness to Catholics. They are utterly dependent upon their priest. From the time they are born, Catholics are dependent upon their priest to baptize them. That is said to be the sacrament of regeneration as well as the sacrament of justification. As Catholics grow older, they need to receive the sacraments. They are necessary for salvation. And then even after a Catholic dies, they are still utterly dependent upon their priest to get them out of a fictitious place called purgatory. He offers the sacrifice of the Mass for those who are deceased, and that is said to expedite their removal from the fires of purgatory. Catholics believe baptism is the means of regeneration. They believe they are alive in Christ when the efficacious waters of baptism sprinkle on their head. They also believe they belong to the one true church. There is family pressure to remain Roman Catholic. This is a huge obstacle to overcome. I was teaching at a church up in Wisconsin, and the church had been praying for the husband of a member for three years that he would come to church and come to faith, and he never would come to church, but his wife found out that a former Catholic was going to come and do a seminar over the weekend, so she convinced him to come. So I taught a message Saturday night entitled, Where Will You Spend Eternity? And after the message, I walked out of the pulpit. I walked up to him. She introduced me, and I said, based on what you have heard this evening from God's Word, what is keeping you from trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your all-sufficient Savior right now? And he just looked at me like a deer in the headlights. I wasn't going to say another word till he answered me. About a minute went by, and finally his wife blurts out, it's your parents. You don't want to offend your parents. He said, you know what? She's right. I don't want to offend my parents. So I opened my Bible to Matthew 10, and I showed him that Jesus came to separate father from son, mother from daughter. I said, who do you love more, God or your parents? I gave him a couple of gospel tracts, and I said, read these tonight. And come back tomorrow morning, I'll be doing the Sunday morning message. The next morning, he and his wife were the first ones into the church. And he sat down, and he was so excited. He said, I, I couldn't sleep at all last night. I read what you gave me, and I tossed and turned. And in the middle of the night, I cried out to the Lord to save me. And then I couldn't wait for my wife to wake up. And we sat on the side of the bed, and I apologized to her biting her head off every time she invited me to church. And I said, in the middle of the night, I cried out to the Lord to save me. So tears of joy were running down our cheeks as we heard how the Word of God and the Spirit of God brought conviction and illumination to this young man. What a joy it is. But see, we, we need to make sure we're overcoming the obstacles. When you give the gospel, don't leave people hanging. Ask them, what is keeping you from trusting the Lord Jesus right now? Jesse. Well, it, it's like an ordinance. You know, the Christian church has two ordinances. We have the baptism and the Lord's Supper, but the Catholic church has seven sacraments, and it's just a requirement for Catholics in order to be saved. 
So some Roman Catholic traditions that distort the gospel, they teach that Mary is another sinless mediator. They reject eternal life, and that is the promise of the gospel. Please don't miss this. Roman Catholics do not have the assurance that when they die, they will spend eternity in heaven. And that's because they're trusting what they are doing rather than what Christ has done. There can never be assurance unless you're putting all your trust in Christ. They continue the work of redemption on an altar that Jesus finished on the cross. I was equipping a church up in Emporia, Kansas, and oftentimes I try and meet with a priest when we travel, and this priest was too busy to meet with me, but as we went out to the Catholic Church to evangelize, there was a five o'clock mass on Saturday afternoon. We walked in and there was a red light on the confessional. That signified the priest was inside hearing confession. So I told my wife and the elder of the church, pray for me, I'm gonna go to confession. If he was too busy to meet with me, I'm gonna go meet with him. And so I walked in, I said, I don't even know where to begin. It's been over 30 years since my last confession. He said, well, don't worry, when you leave here, I'll forgive you of all your sins. And then he said, why has it been 30 years? I said, well, I've been reading the Bible. He said, well, how has reading the Bible kept you from the confessional box? I said, well, what I've been reading in the Bible goes against what I was taught as a Catholic. He said, give me an example. I said, well, in John 19.30, Jesus cried out in victory, it is finished. So why do you continue on an altar what Jesus finished on the cross? He said, give me another example. I said, well, in 1 John 1, 7, it says the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So why do we need purgatory? He said, I can see this is going to take longer than I thought. <laughs> he said, why don't you call me on Monday and we'll continue the conversation. So I flew back to Dallas and gave him a call. By then he knew that we were proselytizing the Catholics at the church. He said, why would you do that? Don't you know we're all Christians? I said, no, as I shared with you in the confessional, you have a, a different gospel. And so I started sharing the gospel with him on the phone and about five minutes in, he said, you know what? Nothing you can say is gonna change my mind. I was born a Catholic and I'm gonna die a Catholic. I said, no, not according to the word of God. You were born a sinner, and you're going to die a sinner unless you repent and believe the gospel. Well, then he hung up on me, but at least I was successful in giving him as much of the gospel as he could take, sowing the seed of God's word. And then when he hung up on me, I prayed that God would not bring any peace to him until he came to the Prince of Peace. So let's look at seven keys for witnessing to Catholics Please recognize the first one is of utmost importance. We're gonna look at each one of these with a little bit of detail, but I'm gonna go through them quickly first. We need to establish the supreme authority of God's word. We need to declare the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to clarify the gospel and the gospel promise. We also need to declare that all sins are mortal. You'll see why in a moment. We need to teach antithetically. That is not only presenting the truth, but showing what opposes the truth so they can repent of what is false. We need to pray. 
And also we need to point them to the narrow way, the only way that leads to life. So the first principle then is to establish God's word as the supreme authority. How do we do this? Well, I think the best place to go is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where we read all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The word reproof means to expose and refute error. So we can use scripture to expose error. And then once we've exposed error, we can use scripture to correct the error. It's useful for correction and for training in righteousness. There's no higher authority than Almighty God, and he has revealed himself through his inspired word. You know, oftentimes Catholics will challenge us on sola scriptura. Don't even go there. Just say, show me a higher authority than Almighty God and his inspired word. There is none. God has exalted his name and his word above all things. Psalm 138, verse 2. So when you look at Catholic authority, you can see why it's important to establish Scripture as the supreme authority. They have Scripture and their tradition equal to the magisterium of the church. They say these are all equal, but you can see in actual practice, it's the magisterium, which is made up of all the bishops in the Catholic Church. Whenever they speak with one voice, they are said to be speaking infallibly. In fact, the Catholic Church dares to say that its bishops are the only authentic interpreters of God's word. That's why they say we must come back home to Holy Mother the Church because we have no right to interpret the scriptures on our own. Well, God's supreme authority is his word. It sits above the teachings of men. Acts 17.11 is a great place to take Catholics to show them the authority of God's word over the teachings of men. The apostle Paul was teaching in the synagogues of Berea, and as he was teaching, his listeners were searching the scriptures daily to determine whether or not Paul was teaching the truth. Shouldn't every pope, every bishop, every priest, every nun, every Bible teacher come under the same authority? Shouldn't everybody's teaching come under the same scrutiny as an apostle? I tell Catholics, here's a man who wrote over half the New Testament. He didn't get upset because they were checking him out. He commended them. They were more noble than the Thessalonians. So we need to show them. Acts 17, 11. We also see Scripture has authority over tradition. In Mark chapter 7, we see the Lord Jesus confronting the apostate Jews because they were nullifying the very word of God for the sake of their tradition. So clearly, the word of God must reign supreme over the traditions of men. And there are only three places in the New Testament where tradition is spoken of in a positive way. And each time, the source of that tradition was an apostle, and each time, that tradition had already been delivered. So yes, there are traditions that we follow, but only the first century apostolic traditions. And don't forget Jude 3, 
We are to earnestly contend for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. So this body of truth that we are to contend for was signed, sealed, and delivered in the first century church. All the Roman Catholic traditions that have come after the first century need to be contended against. So please understand that as you witness to Catholics. We need to rely on Scripture because it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It can slay all the devil's lies. Every lie under the sun can be slain using the authority of God's Word. It pierces, it penetrates, and cuts to the depths of the soul. It never returns void. And that simply means whenever you proclaim the Word of God, it'll bring salvation to those who believe it, but further condemnation for those who reject it but it always accomplishes its purpose. It judges. Before anyone can be saved, their sin must be judged by the Word of God. And we'll see in a moment why this is important as we witness to Catholics. It is living and active. No other words can bring life to a dead soul, and it has divine power and authority. Please don't miss this. Our words have no authority. Our words have no power. When we witness, we want to use the power and authority of God's Word. Roman Catholics will want you to read the early church fathers. They can't prove their religion from the Scriptures, so they take you out of the Scriptures, and they say if you only read the 2nd and 3rd century early church fathers, you will see that the Roman Catholic Church existed in the 2nd and 3rd century. So how do you answer that? Well, two ways. Number one, as you read the early church fathers, you will see that they are on both sides of every issue. So you really haven't proven anything. The second thing to consider is how do we know that the early church fathers Catholics want us to believe are not the very people Paul warned us about at the end of his earthly ministry when he was standing before the Ephesian elders? He said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things for what purpose? To draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Can you see the emotion in Paul's writing here as he stood before the elders? He knew this was going to happen. So the bottom line is we need to test the uninspired words of men with the inspired word of God. That should be our underlying principle. The authority of Scripture should reign over every man's teaching. What good does it do us to read the early church fathers unless we test what they taught with the inspired Word of God. So the second principle for witnessing to Catholics, declare the sufficiency of Christ. I love what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Jesus has become to every believer wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We have become right before God because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to every believer. He has been our redemption. 
He died once for all sin, for all time. There are no more offerings for sin. This is important because the Roman Catholic sacrifice of the Mass is a sin offering. It's a propitiatory sacrifice. They are continuing the work of redemption that Christ finished on the cross. Hebrews 10 destroys the Roman Catholic Mass. He accomplished everything necessary to save sinners, and then he cried out in victory, it is finished. The telestai, paid in full, no more offerings for sin. How does Catholicism deny the sufficiency of Christ? Let me share with you several ways. To his finished work, they add the Mass. To his word, they add tradition. To his headship, they add a pope who declares himself to be head of the Christian church. The pope never died for the church. Only the Lord Jesus died for the church. To his high priestly office, they add the confessional box. To his infinite merit, they add their own merit. The Catholic Church has a treasury of merit that contains not only the inexhaustible merits of Christ, but the merits of Mary and all the saints that died with more than enough merit to get them to heaven. This merit is transferred to those suffering in purgatory, but only when indulgences are purchased. To his purifying blood, they add purgatory. To his righteousness, they add their own filthy rags of righteousness. And that's what the prophet Isaiah called all of our good works prior to justification. They're filthy rags. And to his unique role as sinless mediator, they have another sinless mediator named Mary. So these are just some of the ways that Catholicism denies the sufficiency of Christ. We need to define the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Why is this important? As Roman Catholics, we knew that Jesus died for the sins of the world. That's history. But when I found out Jesus died for me as my substitute, that was salvation. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 is my favorite verse. God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I consider that the greatest exchange in human history. By faith, Christ takes all of my sin, all of my guilt, all of my punishment, and what does he give me in return? His perfect righteousness. Two things that keep anyone out of heaven. They have an eternal sin debt that cannot be paid by finite man. But Jesus, the eternal God-man, came down to cancel the eternal sin debt. That only gets us out of hell. We need perfect righteousness to get into heaven. God took care of that as well. He said, if you will put your trust in my son, the only righteous one, I will give you his righteousness as a gift. We see that in Romans 5.17, as well as here in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's our only passport into heaven, the righteousness of Christ. You know, when I was in seminary and we we're going through Romans 10, I believe it was at that point God placed a, a huge burden on my heart to reach Roman Catholics. Because in Romans 10, Paul is praying for the salvation of his fellow Israelites. 
He said they had a zeal for God, but it wasn't based on knowledge. Not knowing the righteousness of God, they sought to obtain their own righteousness. As I read that verse, I thought, I know so many Catholics who have a zeal for God, but they too do not know the righteousness God's righteousness requires. He requires perfect righteousness. So Catholics are doing the best they can to obtain a right standing before God. They don't know that God requires perfection. So we need to point them to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Some will preach another Jesus. Catholics believe they receive their Jesus physically, frequently in the stomach. The catechism teaches the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained in the Eucharist. Yes, Roman Catholics actually believe they are eating Jesus. Christians receive Jesus once spiritually in the heart so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. The words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3.17. So the third principle for witnessing to Catholics, we need to clarify the gospel and the promise of the gospel. The gospel is eternal. It's the same message for every generation. It never changes it was first announced in the garden. It was given to Abraham. Old Testament saints looked forward to the cross and the coming Messiah would die as a substitute for their sins. New Testament saints looked back to the cross to see Christ dying as a substitute for them. But everybody in heaven will be there because they believed the one and only gospel. Revelation 14.6 describes the gospel as the eternal gospel. The gospel is exclusive. It dares to say that all other faiths and all other religions are false. And that's because the gospel speaks of one person. The Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the way for those who are lost. He is the truth for those who are deceived. And he's the very life for those who are dead in their sins. Peter said, there's no other name given among men by which we are to be saved, Acts 4.12. And Paul said, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The gospel is exclusive. And it's according to Scripture alone. Paul defines it in 2 Timothy 3.15 and also in 1 Corinthians 15.1-4. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus according to the Scriptures. The scriptures don't point us to any other book, to any other authority. If you want to know how to be saved, it's fully contained in the Bible. The gospel has divine power to save those who believe it. We see that in Romans 1.16. It is of grace, and those who add anything to it stand condemned. Paul made this clear in Romans 11.6. If it is by grace, it is not of works. Otherwise, grace is not grace. It's no wonder that every religion in the world teaches a works righteousness salvation because Satan knows the only way God will save sinners is by grace. So he creates all these religions teaching they must do things to appease their God, thus nullifying the only means God will save them. And then the gospel promises eternal life. Roman Catholics don't have eternal life. 
they have conditional life. So 1 John 5.13 is a great verse to take them to. John writes to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, eternal, everlasting, never-ending life with Jesus. That's the promise of the gospel. But the Catholic Church has a different gospel. It is a false and fatal gospel. Now, remember the Judaizers added only one requirement to the gospel. They believed in the Lord Jesus just as Catholics do. They believe in his death and resurrection just as Catholics do. But when they came into town saying, if you're a Gentile, you not only need to believe that, but you need to be circumcised, what did Paul say? Let's have unity with all these brethren. Let them be anathema. Let them be turned over to God for destruction because they dared to add one requirement to the gospel. Well, look at the requirements the Catholic Church has added. Yes, they teach you need faith, but when the infant is being baptized at seven days old, it's not the faith of the infant. It's the faith of the parents. We need to instruct Catholics that God doesn't have any grandchildren. Everyone who's saved must proclaim Christ and believe in him. They must all have faith. But after faith, they have to be baptized. These numbers are paragraph numbers in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So this is their official teaching. They must be baptized as the sacrament of regeneration and justification. They are required to receive the sacraments in order to be saved. They must attend the sacrifice of the Mass under the penalty of mortal sin. They must believe purgatory will purge away their sins. They must keep the law. They must keep the law in order to be saved. That's why James 2.10 is so important. If you keep the whole law perfectly and stumble at one part, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. No one can get to heaven by obeying the law. They have to receive indulgences which remit temporal punishment for sin. They have to do good works in order to be justified. Now keep in mind that Judaizers were condemned for adding one requirement. Look at what the Catholic Church has added. Every Roman Catholic priest, bishop, cardinal, and pope is under a divine curse for teaching another gospel for distorting the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is by the authority of God's word. This isn't Mike's opinion. Every member of the Roman Catholic clergy is under a divine curse. They are to be turned over to God for destruction, for daring to distort the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we need to rescue Roman Catholic people out from under a religion that's under a divine curse. I hope you see this. Paul wrote in Galatians 1.9, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. We need to share this with Roman Catholics. Yes. Yeah, those are paragraph numbers of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Right. That's right. So we need to proclaim the gospel with clarity. We need to share that grace and works are mutually exclusive. You can do nothing to save yourself. Any attempt to do so 
nullifies justifying grace and insults Jesus and his all-sufficient work. Yes. Yeah, the comment is that Catholics believe they are born again at the sacrament of baptism. And we know if we take them to John chapter 3 where Jesus is dealing with Nicodemus and telling him you must be born again, he says it is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not water baptism. And so we need to make it clear it's the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, Jane. Oh, Sure. Supreme. Right. Tradition is never defined as being inspired by God, only Scripture. So Scripture has the authority over apostolic tradition. But the apostolic tradition conforms to the authority of Scripture. It depends on how the conversation goes. I wouldn't bring it up unless they challenge you that their tradition is equal to or greater than the authority of Scripture. But ultimately what they will say is that the bishops have authority over tradition and Scripture. And what the bishops do as the only interpreters of the Word of God, they twist and distort Scripture so that it conforms to their tradition. And so then, actual reality, it's the bishop sitting above the two authorities of the Catholic Church. That's why the Reformation was so important. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. Yes? That's part of it. The other part is to control its people. That's the goal of every religion, That's... to control its people. And um, the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, if you're truly a disciple of mine, you will abide in my word, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? From, from the control of a false religion from the bondage of Satan, from the bondage of religious deception. The truth alone will set you free. It doesn't matter what religion you look at. Their goal is to control the people. So grace and works are mutually exclusive in justification. What Jesus has done to save sinners gives all the glory to God and his saving grace. All boasting in heaven will be in the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness.
But we need to talk about the timing and the motivation of works. So often Catholics will say, so all you have to do is believe in Jesus and you don't do any works? No. Prior to justification, all of our righteous acts are filthy rags. We see that in Isaiah 64, 6. But we must come to the cross with empty hands of faith, bringing nothing but our sins, and then after we are justified and saved, then we are created in Christ Jesus for good works prepared by God for us to walk in. So the good works that we do come after we have been created in Christ Jesus, after we have been born again, after our justification. Prior to that, our works are filthy rags. Now, what's the motivation for Catholics to do good works? In order to be saved. You saw that as part of their gospel. What's our motivation to do good works? Out of love and gratitude and thanksgiving for having been saved. The motivation and the timing is so key. The fourth principle, and please make note of this, all sins are mortal. We must declare that to Catholics because Satan's first lie is perpetuated by Roman Catholicism. Remember in the garden, he told Eve, you surely shall not die if you disobey God, Genesis 3, 4. Well, Catholics are told, you will not die when you commit venial sins. They do not cause death, only temporal punishment. And this is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1863. So Roman Catholics feel like they go through their life never committing mortal sins, only venial sins that do not cause death. But we must tell them that all sins are punishable by death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins will surely die. Purgatory is a place of temporal punishment where Catholics are taught they must go after death to expiate their venial sins. And that's why when Roman Catholics die, the family members will go to the priest, they'll purchase mass cards, which are called indulgences. Here you see a picture of a mass card. The Catholic Church commands that the uses of indulgences most beneficial to Christians should be kept in the church and it condemns with anathema those who say indulgences are useless or the church does not have the power to grant them. They don't want you to miss this. You don't believe this, you're condemned by the Catholic Church. So an indulgence is the remission of temporal punishment. It's to get people out of purgatory more expeditiously. And this is how St. Peter's Basilica was built, the selling of God's grace through indulgences. This was one of the sparks of the Reformation. So I call this the trilogy of deception. It all started with venial sins, the lie of the devil in the garden, the Catholic Church declaring they only incur temporal punishment. So now that you have only temporal punishment, what happens to Catholics when they die with only temporal punishment? They had to create a place called purgatory where sins are purged by fire. So now that you have a place, now you need a way to get them out. So another lie was developed, the lie of indulgences. This is where the time of punishment is reduced. Spiritual deception, the trilogy of lies. Yes? Tell me, tell me that 
It is, but they don't submit to the authority of God's word. They follow pagan traditions. And so these traditions evolved in the Catholic Church over the 1600 years. Yes? Sure. Right. Yeah, Jimmy's bringing up a good point. A lot of Catholics don't know a lot of this. In fact, there's a lot of nominal Catholics that literally check their brain at the door when they go to Mass. And they come out of Mass and they put God on the shelf for another week until they're forced by the penalty of mortal sin to go back to Mass. But it's a requirement, it's an obligation. So. There's a lot of nominal Catholics that aren't aware of the depths of the deception within the church. They're trusting their church to eventually get them to heaven through the priesthood that will offer masses to get them out of this fictitious place called purgatory. That's why the gospel is such good news for Roman Catholics. But John MacArthur's always had a clarion voice on Roman Catholicism. He said in the long war on the truth, the most formidable, relentless, and deceptive enemy has been Roman Catholicism. It is an apostate, corrupt, heretical, false Christianity. It's a front for the kingdom of Satan. Where are the voices like John MacArthur today? Instead, we have so many evangelical leaders that are signing unity accords with this deceptive religion that is under a divine curse and has its members on the wide road to destruction. We need to teach antithetically. If you read the scriptures, you will see the apostles contrasted the impact of believing God's truth instead of Satan's lies. I think a classic example of teaching antithetically, you have two verses that have set Catholics free, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Listen to Paul teaching antithetically. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no man may boast. Another example is Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. All the way through, we see the apostles teaching antithetically, and this is important so people can repent of what is false and believe what is true. The nature of deception. People will never know they're deceived until they're confronted with the truth. And that's what we need to do as truth bearers. We must speak the truth in love. God does not impute his righteousness until sinners are stripped of their own. Oh, I love taking Catholics that are so boastful of their religion to Philippians 3. If anyone had reason to boast in his religion, it was the Apostle Paul. You see his resume given in verses 8 through 9. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law righteous. But then he considered all of that dung for a relationship with Christ. He boasted not of his own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. Ultimately, Paul exchanged his religion for a relationship with Christ. And that's what we must encourage every Catholic to do. God does not make sinners alive in Christ until they know they are dead in their sins. All sins are mortal. So we must tell Catholics they must read God's word to know the truth. They have broken God's law, 
and they are condemned by God's justice. They deserve God's wrath. They need God's mercy, and their only hope is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Now, are there any born-again Christians in the Catholic Church? Yes, there are a few, but the Spirit of God will move them out as they are discipled in the truth. Remember, the Great Commission is to go and make disciples, not decisions. By making disciples, we teach them to observe everything Christ has commanded. In John 4.24, Jesus said, God seeks worshipers in spirit and in truth. How can you worship God in spirit and truth if you're in the Catholic Church that is under divine condemnation? They must come out and not participate in her sins any longer. When Catholics worship the Eucharist, that is the sin of idolatry. It's no different than the Israelites worshiping the golden calf as the true God that delivered them out of Egypt. God hates idolatry. He put 3,000 Israelites to death for the sin of idolatry. So Catholics must come out once they are born again. They cannot continue in a false religion. The sixth principle, we need to pray for the salvation of those blinded by religious deception. That was Paul's prayer in Romans 10 for the Israelites. Paul also prayed in Ephesians 6 for words to be given to fearlessly make known the gospel. If an apostle was praying for the words to be given, shouldn't we also be praying the same way? We need to pray for God to open doors and open hearts for us to proclaim Christ clearly. Again, that was Paul in Colossians 4, verses 2 to 4. The fields are white for harvest, and the Lord of the harvest is sovereign over all things. So we can pray to him for divine appointments. We can pray for open doors of opportunity. As we are witnessing, we can pray for open hearts that they would receive the gospel clearly and joyously. Pray for wisdom to make the most of every opportunity. My wife and I have prayers for divine appointments throughout the week. And how do you know if God's given you a divine appointment? Well, you have to engage people as you go to and fro throughout the day. Oftentimes, if we just have a few moments with a person in a post office line or at the cashier checkout, is anybody giving you any good news today? No? Well, here's the greatest news you'll ever receive. Go to the restaurant. Go before it gets busy or after it's busy and you have a chance to talk to the server. Ask them, are you a Christian? Where do you go to church? How does your church teach you have any hope of going to heaven? You get right to the gospel because you know you only have a few moments. Very least you can do with each divine appointment is to leave the gospel in written form. Leave a gospel track behind. The seventh principle is we witness to Catholics, point them to the narrow way. The Lord Jesus said to enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Look at the context Jesus is speaking in. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
See the context. There's false teachers standing in front of the narrow gate saying it's not here, it's the broad gate. That's why in Luke's gospel, Jesus said you must strive to enter the narrow gate. The striving comes by diligently searching the scriptures to find out the true way, to find out if those standing in front of the narrow way are speaking the truth or if they're false teachers. Jesus warned that there would be false prophets coming to you in sheep's clothing. So we need to test every man's teaching. Here you see two biblical, two paths to eternity, a biblical path and a the Roman Catholic path. I actually developed these two paths to eternity my last semester at seminary, and they're available in our red gospel track, Roman Catholicism, Scripture versus Tradition. By the way, we have some of those on the table over there, and please take a couple as you leave. You know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words. When you sit down with a Roman Catholic and you show them the Roman Catholic path, they will agree that this is the path they are on. And then you show them the biblical path. It's very eye-opening. Catholics believe it's water baptism that puts them on the road to heaven. As they commit those venial sins, they lose some of their right standing before God. A mortal sin puts them on the road to hell again only by confessing to a priest, doing good works, and receiving the sacraments. Can they gain enough merit to qualify them for heaven? Catholics go through this cycle hundreds of times, never knowing where they stand before a holy and righteous God. So at the end of a Catholic's life, if he's never heard the gospel, or if he's heard it and rejected it, he will stand before the Lord Jesus at the great white throne and hear the most terrifying words anyone could ever hear when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, and they're cast into the eternal lake of fire. That's what await those who die without Christ. But if we point them to the biblical path and we show them right off the bat, it's not water baptism, it's faith in Christ. And at that very moment, we are justified with the great promise in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. After justification, we begin the process of sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit, putting to death the evil deeds of the flesh in conforming our life to the life of Christ. At the end of a believer's life or at the rapture of the church, we will stand before the Lord Jesus and hopefully hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And then we'll sing his praises throughout all eternity. Yes, there's a question. Yes, but the three elements of salvation are justification, sanctification, and glorification. We're also born again. We're adopted into God's family. Yes, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. No, no. <laughs> so... Please make sure you get a copy of this gospel track. It really impacts Catholics to see these two different paths. And again, take them to Matthew 7. You know, my uncle was a Catholic priest. He said, Mike, how can one billion Catholics be wrong? And I showed him Matthew 7. Many are on the road to destruction. Just because there's many going one way doesn't make it the right way. 
Well, there are attractions of the Broadway. It seems right to man, but its end is the way of death, Proverbs 14, 12. The reason the Broadway is so attractive is there's no opposition because they're walking with the God of this world. And it's the easy way because they're following others who are deceived and blind to the truth. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, we see the definition of faith. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Catholics hope for eternal life, but they don't have saving faith. They only have conditional faith. We need to show them true faith is in Christ alone. That's the only way there can be assurance. Just a contrast between true saving faith, the object of faith is Jesus alone, his death and resurrection. But in the Catholic faith, the objects of their faith are their religion. A lot of Catholic women like to go through Mary and the sacraments they realize are necessary for, for salvation. The source of faith and true saving faith is the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the very word of Christ the source of faith for Catholics are the Bible, their quote-unquote infallible bishops and their sacred traditions. We see that works are the evidence of true saving faith in Ephesians 2.10, but in the Roman Catholic faith, works are required for justification. Christians have faith in the power and the promises of God, which assures their salvation. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. But Roman Catholic faith rejects the promise of the gospel, and therefore it has no assurance. So show people you care by asking questions. It's a great way to witness. We've talked about this. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Here's some questions you can ask. What's the greatest gift you've ever received? We go out to Catholic churches on Christmas Eve when they're in the mindset of giving and receiving gifts. Great time to ask them, what's the greatest gift you've ever received? Many will point to their jewelry or their cell phone, their children. Just tell them there's a greater gift than that, the gift of everlasting life. Where will you spend eternity? We have a gospel track by that title, great track to give away. Everybody knows eternity's forever. When they die, they're going to be in one of two places. What is your authority for knowing truth? Good question to ask Catholics. Why did Jesus have to die? Last week on the campus of Texas Tech, we asked that question to so many people. They had no idea why Jesus had to die. A lot of nominal Christians, a lot of false converts. You know why he had to die. He had to satisfy divine justice because God cannot let sin go unpunished. He cannot let the guilty go free. Divine justice must be satisfied. And so we explain that divine justice is satisfied in one of two places, either at Calvary's cross where Christ becomes your substitute by faith, or you can reject Christ, but one day divine justice will be satisfied at the great white throne justice, great, great white throne judgment. 
but divine justice will be satisfied when those who reject Christ are cast into the eternal lake of fire. What is the greatest news you've ever heard? Is there any greater news than the promise of eternal life? Are you ready to meet your creator? I follow that up with he'll either be a merciful savior or a sin-avenging judge, but one day you will meet him. Do you know the only way God will forgive your sins? The only way is to trust Christ. Ask Catholics, how and when were you born again? Most Catholics have never heard that expression. You won't find it in the Catholic Church. They talk about regeneration, but they rarely talk about being born again. Jesus said you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Are you trusting what Christ has done or what you must do? Again, we have a gospel track with that title. You can never do what Christ has done. Is purgatory necessary to purge away your sin? It's an insult to the precious blood of Christ because only the blood of Christ can purify our sins. Why do priests continue on an altar what Jesus finished on the cross? Great question to ask Catholics. Why do priests continue the sacrifice of Jesus? They call it a sin offering, a propitiatory sacrifice. Why do they do that when Jesus cried out, it is finished? What does your church teach about salvation? You know, a lot of times Catholics will say, well, I don't know. I don't know what they teach. Well, isn't that important? See, the reason the Catholic Church doesn't teach about salvation is because they're saying, just trust in our church, trust in us, trust in our priest. We'll get you to heaven. What is the object of your faith? You know, everybody's got faith. What is the object of your faith? There's only one object that guarantees eternal life. We need to discipline ourselves to be spiritual doctors. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus said it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And so we must give people their true diagnosis. And that is they were conceived in sin. They were born with a fatal disease called sin. 100% of the people that were born with this fatal disease will die unless they get the cure. And then we must tell them there's more bad news. There is no human cure. But praise God, there is a divine cure, and it's available free for the asking because of a love story written in blood on a wooden cross 2,000 years ago. Be a physician. Tell them their true diagnosis. The only cure is the precious blood of Jesus. We must sow the imperishable seed. Why? Well, Peter said, people are born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We need to be Johnny Appleseeds wherever we go. We need to be sowing the seed. That's why literature evangelism, giving gospel tracts away is so important. You're literally sowing the seed of God's word when you give away gospel tracts. As we scatter the seed of God's living word, he promises 
to bring forth life when it falls on fertile soil. We don't know where the fertile soil is, do we? Which is why we need to sow the seed everywhere. So when you witness, make sure we address the primary problem. We must present the bad news. They inherited a fatal disease called sin. We need to avoid preaching and arguing, seek to have a conversation that is balanced and loving. That's why asking questions is so important. My wife and I played a lot of tennis. That was a mission field for us. Consider evangelism like a tennis match. You volley a question, you wait for the response. You volley a scripture, wait for their reaction. Back and forth, back and forth. Unbelievers do not want to be preached at. And I know some of us get so excited, that's all we want to do is give the gospel. Back up the theological dump truck. Let them all have it. One fell swoop. It's got to be balanced. Define terms biblically. Faith, for example, is the transfer of trust from self or religion to Christ. Please understand that Catholics believe they are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Don't miss that. That's what Catholics believe. The word alone is so important. They are saved not by faith in Christ plus their works. They're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone. We must call them to repent of all they are doing and put all their trust in what Christ has done. By the way, Catholics have redefined grace. The Catechism, paragraph 2027, says Catholics must merit all the graces necessary for salvation. How do you merit the unmerited favor of God? How would you handle this? Some will reject the gospel because it would mean their ancestors are not in heaven. Well, let the Bible answer that for them. Take them to Luke 16, where you have the rich man and Lazarus. What did the rich man want when he found himself in the fires of hell? What did he want other than a drop of water to quench his thirst? He wanted a Yeah, he wanted a witness to go back, a missionary to go back to his brothers on earth to tell them the truth so they wouldn't end up in this place of torment where he is. So I tell Catholics, no matter where your ancestors are, they would want you to know the truth. And then I give them hope. I take them to the cross. Both thieves were mocking Jesus initially, but then the Father in heaven revealed to one of the thieves who was dying next to him, And he repented and put his faith in Christ. He said, remember me in paradise. He was a Christ rejecter all of his life. He was a sinner all of his life. But at the last moment, the Father in heaven revealed to him who Jesus is. Maybe your ancestors had that same experience. But don't let this be a stumbling block for you coming to Christ. Now let me close with an important contrast. The Bible is what God says. Catholicism is what man says God says. We must encourage Catholics to go directly to the source for truth. Test the uninspired words of men with the inspired word of God. That is the only way we can keep from being deceived.
It must become our supreme authority. I've written a book called Preparing for Eternity, and this book does two things. It equips you to be better equipped to effectively communicate the gospel to Catholics, but it's a great book to give to Catholics because it forces them to make a decision. Should I trust Christ and his word or the teachings and traditions of my religion? I present the book antithetically, showing what the truth is from God's word right alongside what the Catholic Church teaches from the catechism. And it's impossible to believe both, and so they're forced to make a decision. This book has set so many Catholics free from the bondage of religious deception. It's available on our website. I've brought a few copies this morning, and you can save $5 by picking one up. They're $10 here, so if you're interested in equipping yourselves further, then get a copy of the book. We have the book available free for the asking in Spanish, and it's in a PDF format, so all you have to do is have an email and we will send you the book in Spanish. And this is good because it's so expensive to send the book out internationally, but if you have people that uh, can't read English, then this is a great way to send it out in a PDF format. All they need is an email address. And don't forget gospel tracts. After you give the gospel verbally, it's good to leave it back, leave it behind in a written form. So, a lot we covered. Can you see the importance, though, of so seven biblical principles? Any questions or comments, any thoughts? Jacob. Yeah, I would take her to 1 Timothy 2.5 and show that there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's because Christ is God's perfect man and man's perfect God. Mary's not qualified, even though your religion teaches that she's a sinless mediator. Clearly, by the authority of Scripture, there's only one, and so you must go to God through Christ, and he's the one that's not only a mediator, but also the Savior. Mm-hmm. Yes. Be careful with those counterfeit bills. The reason I say that is, is it right to present the truth on one side of a counterfeit bill? Because you're showing that the bill is counterfeit. So I don't know, I think there's a conflict there, so just be careful. We need to make sure when we give gospel tracts away that um, they represent the Lord and the, and the Word of God very accurately. Uh, we don't want to give any gospel tracts away that have sinner's prayer on the back because that has produced so many false converts in our churches today. The only response to the gospel is repent and believe it. So 
I think we've talked about this before, the danger of asking someone to repeat a prayer for salvation is you don't know their heart. How do you know they're honoring God with their lips when their heart is far from him? That's the words of our Lord. So if a person is drowning in the middle of a lake, you don't have to say, now you gotta holler help before anybody will come save you. When you have shown they are sinners under the wrath of God, destined for destruction on the wide road, take them to Romans 10:17. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10:13. And you will hear some of the most beautiful prayers you've ever heard. I was uh, sharing with somebody, and he was so convicted of his sin, so ready to be saved. He said, what do I need to do? And I showed him Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He bowed his head and cried out, Jesus, save me. Didn't have to lead him in a prayer. Okay, so be careful when you give away gospel tracts. Any other questions? Yes? Just a little bit of a personal I, I grew up in an Irish Catholic family. And I embraced Protestant Christianity at about the age of 16. I spent more than 51 years ago. And it produced such enmity between my parents and me and many of my relatives. You're welcome. Um, just as a side note, I have a monthly newsletter that goes out on the first of every month. If you're not getting it, proclaimingthegospel.org. I did a newsletter article last month. It was an urgent plea to Roman Catholics. And in that lead article, you can actually cut and paste different paragraphs to send out to your Catholic loved ones, friends, and relatives. Well, one of the things I said in the article, if our roles were reversed, 
I would want you to pursue me with the truth until I repented and believed it. You know, we're doing this out of love. We're giving you the greatest news you'll ever hear. Why are you being offended by it? And if they say my religion is private, don't let them get away with that. Ask them why. Jesus said we're to be his ambassadors, to go into the world and tell the world about him. Why is it private to you? Whenever they just want to dismiss you, just ask them why. Why don't you want to talk about this? You know, oftentimes, and I can speak from experience, Catholics don't want to talk about their religion because they don't know much about it. They're, they're ignorant. They don't want to show their ignorance, but just lovingly pursue as long as they will listen. You know, and if they get to the point where they say, and that's what my family did, I don't want to hear from you anymore, Mike, well, honor that request and then pray to the sovereign Lord that he would send someone else to them to give the good news to them. So proclaiming the gospel.org. There's also another thing I want to bring your attention to on the website. There's a message that I did in Southern California several months ago that has actually gone viral. It just passed a million views on YouTube. And it's a great message to send out to Catholics because all I did in the message is I show the seven major differences between biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. We have gotten so many emails, so many phone calls, so many letters from Catholics saying, I never knew the differences. And so it's an excellent video to send out to your Catholic loved ones. And it's speaking the truth in love. And it's, um, we just stand in awe of what God has done because needless to say, so many people now are aware of the resources that we have to reach Roman Catholics in this huge mission field. So... Well, you go to the website and you click on, it's on the front page, yeah? You just click on it, it's right there on the front page. The name of the message is, You Will Be Shocked. It's an appropriate title because so many Catholics are shocked because of the differences between the Bible and their religion. Yes. So if there's no other questions, then don't forget to avail yourself to some of our gospel tracts. And if you need a copy of the book, you can talk to Jane. Let me close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for the great privilege it is to represent our Lord Jesus Christ and take his gospel to this huge mission field. Father, I know there are many that came out of the Catholic Church here this morning. So even now I'm praying for all the families that are represented here that you would give us open opportunities and open hearts. They would receive the gospel with gladness and joy. And Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of Christ and how it promises eternal, everlasting life. We thank you for Jesus and how much he means to each one of us. May we represent him and be faithful to his great commission, all for his glory and the power of his name. Amen.